The beauty of God's inerrant word found in the majority text is gloriously and supernaturally penned. It is the God light, the true light that illuminates the highway of life. Psalms 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Redemption, where the journey to eternal life begins at the place Jesus calls born again, is compared to light in Matthew four sixteen and 17. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death light is sprung up. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At born again, the light begins to shine, and that light grows daily as we seek the face of God. Proverbs 4, verse 18, But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The headlamps on an automobile are measured in candle power. The more candle power, the greater the light piercing the darkness for hundreds of feet, allowing the driver to safely travel at high rates of speed. Just like the headlamps, a believer has candle power. After the initial surge of light, God adds candle power to his children, one revelation at a time, and this holy light pierces the darkness, giving one the ability to see all the way into eternity. This light of life is not a spiritual metaphor, but a very certain reality. Just ask the redeemed. Have you seen the light? Have you been born again? Will today be the day your dark skies turn bright? Will today be the day your sin and shame are forgiven and all Satan's bondages broken? What are you waiting for? Make your move now. Step out into the light and live forever. Click on the Further with Jesus right now for childlike instructions and immediate entry into the kingdom of God. Now for today's subject. God said, Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. God said, 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God said, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 14, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing shall be put to it, nor anything taking from it, and God doeth it, that men should fear before him. Man said, the Bible has zero credibility. Only the unlearned and easily led pay any attention to it. Now the record. I need to know it's true. Absolutely everything depends upon it from the cradle to the grave and beyond. Christians are commanded in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. This is the ninth feature in the Undeniable Proof series. In the first eight articles, God said, man said, listed in rapid fashion, 100 amazing proofs 
of the supernatural accuracy of the Bible, history, miracles, and all. Things that at first glance seem impossible, but after a closer look are not only possible, but true. In the weeks that follow, God willing, the list of amazing proofs will swell from 100 to 101 and on to 200. Prepare for sheer beauty. Proof 101, Genesis 17, verse 5. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. The father of Israel is Abraham, who lived approximately 4,000 years ago. He is known as the father of faith. The seed of faith that dwelt in him was Christ. He is mentioned in the Bible over 200 times. But did this man Abraham truly exist? Was he just a figment of Hebrew folklore, as the skeptics claim? Daly records the following in his book, Mysteries of the Bible. At Karnak, archaeologists have deciphered a stela, a standing stone on which Pharaoh Sheskong describes his triumphant campaign against Israel. Most of the perhaps 150 names on the stela have eroded and are unreadable. Of those that remain, perhaps 70 names come from the Negev, a desert in southern Israel. One of these has been identified by Egyptologists as the equivalent of the Hebrew Abram. The phrase where the name occurs reads, The Fort of Abraham. Is the Abram of Fort Abram the biblical patriarch? Possibly. After all, the biblical Abraham lived in the Negev, where this Fort Abraham was located. End of quote. Proof 102. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. In the publication Search for the Truth, Bruce Malone says an ancient Chinese archaeological finding supports the biblical account of the infamous tree. He writes, But is there any evidence that this momentous event when mankind reached up into a tree to grab a forbidden fruit while being tempted by Satan in the form of a snake is actually real? We find exactly that in an ancient bronze statue of a tree found buried in the ruins near Guanghan, China. This 12-foot-tall tree has sloping branches, but significantly, on the branches bearing fruit, the leaves are shaped like dangerous knives, indicating that the fruit of this tree is dangerous or forbidden. Coming from the very center of the tree is a long snake-like body, but this snake still has legs near its head, and the snake is glaring down near a human hand with its large evil eyes and bared teeth. Lastly, the bronze statue has a human hand reaching toward the tree near the serpent's head. This huge bronze statue was cast at the very beginning of the Chinese culture over 3,000 years ago. It is obvious that long before missionaries ever arrived in China, these original Chinese people, who were direct descendants of Noah, wanted their children to remember the factual event which brought death unto all of creation. So they created a 12-foot-tall bronze tree, memorializing one of the most significant events of all human history. End of quote. Proof 
103. Judges 16, 27 through 30. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and there were upon the roof about three thousand men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood, and on which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand and of the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his lifetime. Of the famed Samson and Delilah, Dr. Daly weighs in with the following in Mysteries of the Bible. But is it possible that such a thing could actually have happened? Archaeological excavation of the Philistine cities provides us with some illuminating evidence related to the biblical story. Philistine temples have been uncovered at Tel Quazel in northern Tel Aviv and Tel Mikni, the ancient Ekron. Interestingly, the roofs of both temples were supported by two central pillars made of wood resting on stone bases. The pillars were about six feet apart, making it theoretically possible for them to be dislodged, thus collapsing the roof. It would take a person of superhuman strength to accomplish such a feat, which certainly fits the description of Samson Excuse me, before he was compromised by Delilah. The Bible states that his hair, which was the source of his might before the Philistines cut it off, had grown back in prison. End of quote. Proof 104. Genesis 11, 7 through 9. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Was there a place in time where the whole world spoke one language? Did God confound man's language at the Tower of Babel because of man's rebellion? An ancient pagan, not Hebrew, but pagan Mesopotamian text dating back 2,400 years called Emmerker and the Lord Arata confirms the uh, confounding of the common language of man. Dr. Daly again records the account under the subject of the Tower of Babel. It reads in part, In those days, the land of Suber and Hamazi, harmony-tongued Sumer, the great land of the decrees of princeship, Uri, the land having all that is appropriate, the land Martu resting in security, the whole universe, the people in unison to Enlil, and one tongue spoke. Then Enki, the Lord of abundance, whose commands are trustworthy, the Lord of wisdom, who understands the land, the leader of the gods, endowed with wisdom, the Lord of Erdu. He changed the speech in their mouths, brought contention into it, into the speech of man that until then had been one. End of quote. Proof 105, Genesis three twenty-two through 24. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. 
And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Man was created to live forever, to never die. This idea of immortality, once considered one of the Bible's most ridiculous exaggerations, is now the center of serious speculation, with billions of dollars being poured into the quest to extend life and to discover immortality itself. A few headlines follow. The headline in the March-April 2015 issue of Psychology Today reads, Tinkering with Mortality. The subhead reads, The quest for eternal life has been with us eternally, but the latest interventions raise questions we've never before encountered. The headline in the May 8, 2015 issue of the week reads, Text Quest for Immortality. The subhead, Silicon Valley's billionaires have a new project, said Ariana Unjung Cha. They want to defy death. The following excerpt is from the article in U.S. News & World Report titled The Cells of Immortality. It reads, Over the past century, vaccines, antibiotics, and good sanitation have upped the average America's life expectancy by decades to today's 74 years for men and 79 for women. Now new understanding of the genes and chemicals involved in aging may not only help humans live far past that age, but more important, may also help people retain health and strength in those latter years. The discovery of biological clocks ticking away in each of our cells and a knowledge of how to reset those clocks open the possibility that a human would never die, at least not from old age. February 2013 feature in the magazine Life Extension, the headline on its front page reads, How Engineered Stem Cells May Enable Youthful Immortality. October 27, 2017, geekwire.com. Is Jeff Bezos looking for the fountain of youth? April 24, 2016, The Wall Street Journal. Fountain of Youth? Drug trial has seniors scrambling to prove they're worthy. June 26, 2016, New York Post. What if you could live forever? Immortality is now uh, in consideration. Proof 106, 1 Samuel 17, 4 through 8. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And he had an helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel, and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. Did young David slay this nearly ten-foot-tall giant with one smooth stone? Is there any record left of Goliath? 
The armies of the Philistines were encamped between Shoko, being situated about 15 miles from Bethlehem, where David was born and raised. The armies of Israel pitched by the valley of Elah. Keep these locations, Shoko, Azekah, and Elah, in mind as you review the following astounding paragraphs published in the July 2, 2004 issue of the Jerusalem International Post. The gentle heights of Tel Succo in the south and Tel Azekah to the north slope down like a mother's thighs into the Elah Valley. Filled today with blazing sunflowers, this valley is a womb. From here, the legend of David and Goliath was born. From here, the Palestinian refugees set out to the hills in the distance 56 years ago, and from here a renewal of modern Israeli settlements emerged. We saw ourselves living on the remains of King David. We are in the direct line of David's ancestors. My people were taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar and only now have returned, says Asahel Lavi, who was born and Zechariah to Kurdish immigrants. We return to the land and to our ancestral home. I don't have to apologize for the fact that others stole my land for over 2,000 years, says Lavi, who grew up in a house Palestinians built using Byzantine-era stones. The Palestinians call this area Makbarat Jalut, Goliath's grave, says Lavi, uh, surveying his field of wheat. Well, I found it. Goliath's grave, it's right over there. Lavi points to a patch of stunted wheat where an altar made of a circle of stones lies partially hidden. Proof 107, 2 Samuel 5, 4 and 5. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. Why all the denial over King David? Could it have something to do with Matthew 1, 1? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The headline of the feature in the May-June 2011 issue of Biblical Archaeology Review, written by Joseph Garfinkel, reads, The Birth and Death of Biblical Minimalism. Several paragraphs have been lifted from this feature for your review. Biblical minimalism, as it is known, has gone through a number of permutations in the recent past. Its modern career began about 30 years ago, when uh, Biblical Archaeology Review was still a youngster. Since then, it has been part of the ongoing debate regarding the extent to which historical data are embedded in the Hebrew Bible. Much of the discussion focused on the biblical narrative about the 10th century B.C., the time of David and Solomon, the period known as the United Monarchy. Was there a United Monarchy, Monarchy excuse me, where David and Solomon, kings of a real state, did they actually exist, or were they simply literary creations of the biblical writers? For the minimalist, King David was about as historical as King Arthur. The name David has never been found in an ancient inscription. Hardly had the minimalist argument been developed than it was profoundly undermined by an archaeological discovery. In 1993 and 94, several fragments of an Aramaic stela were found that the long-running excavation of Tel Dan led by Avram Barum of Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem. 
The historical references in the ascription and the paleography of the writing make it clear that it dates to the ninth century B.C. Moreover, the text specifically mentions a king of Israel and a king of the house of David, that is, a king of the dynasty of David. This discovery led to a re-examination of the well-known Meshastila, a contemporaneous Moabite inscription discovered more than a century ago. André Lemaire, a senior paleographer at the Sorbane, identified in that text an additional reference to the house of David. This was subsequently confirmed by another senior paleographer, Emil Pooch. This led to the collapse of the minimalist paradigm in which David was little more than a myth. There was a David, he was a king, and he founded a dynasty. The argument that Judah was an agrarian society until the end of the 10th century B.C., and that David and Solomon could not have ruled over a centralized, institutionalized kingdom before then, has now been blown to smithereens by our excavations at Kerbet Quiafa, where we have seen, where we have been in the field, excuse me, for the past four summers. End of quote. Proof 108, 1 Kings 7, 48 through 50. And Solomon made all the vessels that pertained unto the house of the Lord, the altar of gold and the table of gold whereupon the showbread was, and the candlesticks of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left before the oracle with the flowers and the lamps and the tongs of gold and the bowls, and the snuffers, and the basins, and the spoons, and the censers of pure gold, and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the house to wit of the temple. The minimalists have been minimalized. Yes to David, yes to Solomon, yes to the temple he built, and yes to all the vessels of ministry he made, and to the battle over them to this very day. In January of 2004, a letter was drafted by Gershon Salomon, chairman of the Temple Mount and Land of Israel Faithful Movement. The letter was sent to the late Pope John Paul II. Part of this letter follows. Sir, a call from the God and people of Israel. Immediately return the Temple menorah, vessels, and treasures of Jerusalem. In the name of the God of Israel, you are requested to immediately return the Jewish temple menorah and other temple vessels and treasures to Jerusalem to the soon-to-be-rebuilt temple. As you well know, in 70 A.D., the Romans occupied the city of God, Jerusalem, and the land of Israel and destroyed the holy temple of the God of Israel in Jerusalem. They took away with them to Rome the holy seven-branch menorah from the temple and many other holy temple vessels and treasures used by the Jews in the worship in the temple. The evil emperor Titus, who destroyed the temple and burned it, built his triumphal arch in Rome, on which is depicted the menorah and other vessels carried by Jewish captives. Since this terrible event in the history of Israel and mankind, we know very well that the menorah, the vessels, and the treasures that were taken to Rome have remained in the vaults of the Vatican. Travelers and visitors to the Vatican throughout history have reported seeing them. This is the time to return these articles to Israel. Today, Israel is the most exciting fulfillment of God's end-time prophecies and promises. The climax of this prophetic time will be the soon rebuilding of the temple 
exactly as the prophets of Israel prophesied, end of quote. The temple menorah, which was the seven-branched golden candlestick in the Solomonic temple, and the temple's holy vessels are historically believed to be in the possession of the Vatican. In 1996, Israel's minister of affairs, Shimon Shastrit, met with Pope John Paul II. The Jerusalem Post reported that he had asked the Vatican cooperation in locating the golden menorah from the second temple that was brought to Rome by Titus in 70 A.D. Israel's faithful want the menorah and the temple's holy vessels back. They are preparing to rebuild the temple. End of quote. Proof 109, 2 Chronicles 1, 7 through 12. In that night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father, and hast made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established, for thou hast made me king over a people, like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge, that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this thy people that is so great? And God said to Solomon, Because this was in thine heart, and thou hast not asked riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither yet hast asked long life, but hast asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people over whom I have made thee king. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee, and I will give thee riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had that have been before thee, neither shall there any after thee have the like. Is this simply old Jewish legend? When they asked the man to whom was attributed the miraculous greening of the land of Israel about how he managed to accomplish such a feat, he said he found the secret in the writings of Solomon. Proof 110, 2 Kings 19, 32-37. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred, fourscore, and five thousand, and when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, that Adramelech and Sharezer his son smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Ezrahaddon his son reigned in his stead. The humanists find such a miraculous account unacceptable, but much to their dismay. Secular history soundly confirms the biblical writings. One of the secular historical records, according to the famed Jewish historian Josephus, was left to the world by Herodotus, who has the vaunted title of the father of history. Josephus reports on the Hezekiah-Sennacherib confrontation and quotes the historian Berossus, the Chaldean, uh, directly, and he writes, And Herodotus does indeed give us this history, nay, and Berossus, 
who wrote of the affairs of Chaldea, makes mention of this king Sennacherib, and that he ruled over the Assyrians, and that he made an expedition against all Asia and Egypt, and he says thus, Now when Sennacherib was returning from his Egyptian war to Jerusalem, he found his army under Rabshakeh his general, in danger by a plague, for God has sent a pestilential distemper among his army. And on the very first night of the siege, a hundred, fourscore, and five thousand, with their captains and generals, were destroyed. So the king was in a great dread, and in a terrible agony at this calamity, and being in great fear for his whole army, he fled with the rest of his forces to his own kingdom and to his city Nineveh. And when he had abode there a little while, he was treacherously assaulted and died by the hands of his elder sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, and was slain in his own temple, which was called Araske. End of quote. A footnote added by the translator of Josephus writes this, that this terrible calamity of the slaughter of the 185,000 Assyrians is here delivered in the words of Barosus the Chaldean, and that it was certainly and frequently foretold by the Jewish prophets, and that it was certainly and undeniably accomplished, see Authentic, Record, Part 2, page 858, end of quote. True and righteous altogether, that's what the Word of God is, even a lamp in a very dark place. Embrace it with your might. God said, Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. God said, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God said Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14, I know that whatsoever God doeth it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it, and God doeth it, that men should fear before him. Man said, The Bible has zero credibility. Only the unlearned and easily led pay any attention to it. Now you have the record.